Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. What is up? My name is Evan Singler. And I'm Eddie Ernst. And this is the PTA Tapes, a podcast where we go, tell them, Eddie. Behind the scenes of physical therapy. That is right. Behind the scenes of physical therapy. We want to talk to people about their story, what makes them different, and how others can channel their difference to also be successful. So, put the tape in and let's roll. We're coming back on the air after an interruption due to technical problems. What is up, everybody? Welcome back. As always, Evan here, Eddie here, we're bringing you some goody-goody, you know how it is, and honestly, I'm just chilling out in North Carolina right now, we got Hurricane Florence trying to come and wreck us up, but it's all good vibes here, and we know we've been sleeping a little bit, but we got some good content, we're coming back strong, we're coming back hard, so please please tune in because we got some good stuff coming your ways and speaking of good stuff tape 15 right now let's do this we sat down with nick jordan and mario the bfr pros if you don't know what bfr is blood flow restriction and we hashed it out and when i mean hashed it out i mean we hashed it out we talked about everything under the sun when it comes to bfr and those guys are so so intelligent about what they do it's ridiculous. And the only thing I can say is listen, 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 because you'll learn so much from these guys and then formulate your own opinion, figure out if this is something that you want to take to the clinic with you or not. Or if you want to get more information on it, you can reach out to these guys. I mean, they are awesome guys. So anyways, here we go. Tape 15, part one, BFR pros. Let's do it. Are we live right now? You're already recording? Yeah, yeah, we're going. Okay, all right, good. I'm glad none of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I usually get like a like a tee up to the podcast yeah. and then like, all right, we're going to go live and just so we kind of prep. So, oh, yeah, no, um, no, you're good. We'll start from this end of the screen. We'll work our way down. Uh, Sounds good. So uh, uh, Mario Novo, uh, doctor of physical therapy, um, undergrad in exercise physiology, uh, have worked in regards to uh, orthopedic research in NeoA, um, cervical spine whiplash, uh, TMD, and now BFR, uh, which I've done either in one in one capacity through a case series uh, with a uh, pro NFL team in Tennessee, and as well through um, a IRB approved study. Uh, through Belmont University, specifically looking at acute uh, effects of BFR in regards to blood pressure, heart rate, um, perceived exertion, um, uh, pain, and uh, and then obviously any any changes in like limb circumference. Uh, currently, teach at Belmont University as an adjunct professor. Have my own uh, private practice, which is Lifters Clinic, and that's uh, right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, former clinical instructor with uh, Owens Recovery Science and current uh, director of BFR with Smart Tools. So it's kind of, that's me in a nutshell right there. Nick? 
Yeah, I follow that up. Um, no, uh, Nick Nicholas Rolnick, um, <laughs> also a doctor of physical therapy, uh, graduated from Columbia University, and um, also have a master's degree in health promotion. I uh, I have my own out of network cash clinic, the Human Performance Mechanic, and in terms of the philosophy that kind of underlies my practice, there it's about having everybody of all different populations experience the joy of pain-free movement and BFR fits really nicely in there because it provides a novel way that we can challenge our patients, uh, but also just do something that actually works and is better than current um, plan of care. Uh, this is currently being done in rehab by most practitioners and uh, it's something that actually can be used throughout the rehab continuum. So it's not something that is just thought of as a, you know, we're doing this for in the beginning and then we're going to do this, you know, for two, three weeks and then we're going to get off it. Um, so it kind of fits really nicely in there. I, um, I also am a, a professor as well in extra science at Concordia University, an online program where I teach kinesiology and applied functional anatomy. I've been doing that for a year and a half. And uh, yeah, and then I joined uh, the BFR pros to uh, with these clowns to help uh, try to pro- try to provide what's missing in terms of BFR, and and that's pretty much programming and how you can now that you if you understand the science and you understand the physiology, how you can then plug and play into already previously existing programming to optimize performance uh, and the BFR pros. You know, it, we were taking the angle of of how BFR can accelerate human performance, accelerate uh, whatever your goals are. Uh, with BFR, we can help do it faster, and so that's why we're 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 here to to kind of shed light on BFR and how that can be used in clinical practice. So, Jordan, yeah, so I'm uh, Jordan Ascanio, and um, I'm just trying to keep up with you guys after hearing all your your bias here. I think they're like, man, we this is over. This is as long yeah. as to be. So um, I actually went to school with Mario um, a few years ago now, and um, I guess he brought me into BFR back when he was teaching at ORS, and uh, I actually took the performance route with BFR from the beginning. I work mostly with um, triathletes, bodybuilders, a little bit more advanced population. Um, I do have a private practice clinic. Um, so we, we use it in the full spectrum, but that would say that's my, my biggest focus right now is how to use BFR in, in a performance environment. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at that for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So as far as like um, indications for it, like where, you know, for post-op patients, um, you know, why, why is this useful for, why is this useful for people? Like, why do we want to use um, blood flow restriction for somebody versus having them do their standard, you know, leg extension exercises for post-op or just in general? Um, so BFR, I guess we can kind of you want to talk about pillars or you want to talk about yeah, like can, how that kind of fits in. Yeah, we can talk about pillars. Um, okay, well, I, let's maybe field the question first. Yeah, okay. So why do we even want to apply it before we can get the pillars? Uh, kind of go yeah, I mean, so atrophy is a big problem. Atrophy, the type two uh, muscle fibers in particular, are a very big problem. Um, something like in the first two weeks, uh, you can get upwards 
of 10% loss in cross-sectional area, 27 to 31% loss in muscle strength. Um, even in a recent literature uh, piece that was one of the, one of the uh, papers that was on, one of the research groups I follow saw after one week of post-op hip saw four and a half percent loss in quadriceps cross-sectional area and atrophy is a big problem atrophy uh relates to muscle strength and uh that then relates to morbidity and mortality so the more of this quality that you have the less likely you are to exhibit functional decline and the less likely you are without being really morbid is really to to, to die um so being in the early post-operative period the problem is is that it, these these fibers tend to atrophy very quickly with underloading, and we're not able to load these fibers appropriately under traditional circumstances. And so, what we can do with BFR is we create an artificial high intensity environment for the muscle fibers because the muscle fibers don't know anything; they don't know any different, right? Like we know differently from a cognitive level that we don't necessarily have a large load on the limb, but our muscles really are only reacting to, to the vocal environment. So we can stimulate a very high intensity environment with little to no weight at all. And, uh, and that can help stimulate earlier recruitment of the type two muscle fibers to promote a potentially quicker return to function and, uh, and obviously whatever human performance, uh, capabilities that are, uh, important to the, to the client. So um, Nick, I think brought a really good point when we're talking about uh, like the reality of seeing our patient walk in the door, uh, the trouble that they're going to have living in their functional day-to-day -day life, their ADLs, you know, if they got stairs at home, their inability to take those stairs, either following, you know, precautions after surgery or simply because they lack the actual strength, um, but also endurance capacity. They maybe take a whole flight of stairs. We know is something that the patient's gonna voice to us. So, you know, in the patient's perspective, this is the, you know, I don't only have pain, but I feel weak, you know, and the biopsychosocial model lets us know that, you know, as physical therapists, we have a large capacity to create change. And I think what's most relevant now with BFR is that the change that we're intending to make for our patients through a traditional model has a very high barrier of entry. So that means that we have to, um, we have to really expose our patients uh, to threat. We have to expose them to dosing parameters that would respect uh, recommendations from the American College of Sports Medicine to create change. But we know that those recommendations are really not feasible in a lot of just your typical day-to-day -day physical therapy practice. So having an ability to lower that bar or lower that barrier of entry where in, in some instances, there doesn't necessarily even need to be exercise, right? Simply just placing a a limb in a in a hypoxic like uh, environment is enough to already help to slow down muscle atrophy, um, help to retain some strength, and as we begin to uh, gradually expose our patient, right, through graded exposure to more intensity, and how that would look like with BFR would be um, applying a little less pressure, but beginning to now start with contraction. Um, that's going to essentially open the door to having more of an outcome for um, muscle protein synthesis, and more importantly, I think is going to be growth hormone and our ability to understand the function that our body has in its capacity to heal itself, and that we do need a little bit of stress to keep that healing process going. I think it's 
quite common. We can see patients that are in the gym that if they're not pushed, you know, they're going to be there for a lot longer or the likelihood is if we're just underserving them in a capacity that, you know, maybe we're afraid to load them because they have a lot of comorbidities or they're older, you know, they have no training age and um, we're kind of afraid to put heavy weight on them. The likelihood is that we're doing them a disservice. They're going to come back. They're going to have arthritis that can develop even from something as simple as, you know, a meniscectomy. And then we've got a, we've got a problem, right? Overutilization uh, through the Medicare system to, you know, uh, through the medical system too often. So yeah, BFR really gives us that ability to lower that barrier um, and start to stair-step that patient in a very meaningful way. I mean, all of us, Jordan, you'd agree, you know, you get a patient that comes, they're post-op, um, you are, you're going to be working on range of motion, you're going to be working on endurance with that person. But we know that if we maintain this traditional route, the likelihood is that we're really not getting any more than just that. You know, the brain, I think, has a awesome capacity for neuroplasticity. But beyond that, we're not stimulating any of the anabolic pathways that are necessary. And you work a lot with bodybuilders. It's obviously really important for them. But just because Mary, who's 50 years old, who's not into weightlifting, um, you know, she's not thinking about gaining 18-inch arms, but she's definitely wanting to, you know, be able to get her mail right? Go upstairs, your grandkids, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, you want to, you want to add anything to that? You were in there. About um, I would say that it opens up an opportunity to start doing things early in a non-threatening way for the patient. Um, mm -hmm. something that would normally be perceived as a painful or threatening, you get an opportunity to, um, take a different route to do the same thing and give them a very similar outcome in a way that they're actually more comfortable doing. No, then, sorry, keep going. Oh, you're fine. So I think that's where we apply our pillars into how to first introduce that, that sensation, how to first introduce um, BFR, and then gradually just grade them up through the pillars depending on their tolerance and how they progress to the rehab. No, I really liked what you said um, with starting things early in a non-threatening way um, and then kind of going back with what you were talking about in, in terms of atrophy um because a, a lot of you know talking to you guys and stuff um as you know current practitioners of pta and stuff and out there in the clinic um i actually work um acute so i work um in a hospital i do a lot of trauma i also float around to orthopedics and so we do see um patients like post-op day zero program for our orthopedics so our total hips and total knees um but I do see what you're talking about, you know, two weeks bedridden and atrophy is a major, major issue in the hospital. Um, and then especially post-op because the way we work on our system is, you know, we'll have patients come in for group treatments in the morning and we'll have them in the afternoon. And the whole idea is how soon can we get them to come in, complete their goals and then, you know, get them discharged so we can get another bed open for the next patient coming in. Um, but the problem with that is also is it's, it's very hard to address mobility goals um in a very short amount of time when you're only seeing them for group treatments but you can't see them in, for individual treatments to work on the strength they need to address those goals so when you talk about bfr kind of being able to initiate some of those things from an early standpoint but non-threatening one thing i wanted to touch on with that was if you know for a lot of these patients who have you know other comorbidities whether it's like high blood pressure or um you know unstable blood pressure whatever it may be What's the evidence on, you know, because I know you talked about it a little bit, you were looking into, you know, uh, BFR in terms of how it affects blood pressure, things of that nature. Um, so for me, for I guess for someone who might be working in an acute setting or something with patients who are a little less stable, 
um, than maybe your um, your performance settings or your private practice or cash base. What I guess what evidence is there on BFR on being able to work with some of those like I guess unstable patients in terms of you know those com- comorbid- comorbidities. Sorry, it's kind of loaded. No, that's cool. It's a very valid um, question. So, uh, show of hands, who's been in an acute setting with us three? Through school, you guys do any? Ro- you guys have rotations in acute, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I went private practice, I used to do PRN at a hospital. It was about gotcha. Years right. in acute setting. So, um, and obviously when I was in school, ICU, all that stuff. Is, yeah. It's an interesting environment to be in, um, and. Uh, there definitely is a lot that we can do. So I think if we take this first uh, in kind of a step back approach and we think um, in terms of uh, safety in regards to a patient, um, some of the literature in BFR that's allowing us to understand um, the capacity that we have in a very short period of time to create change in a patient in absence of exercise actually comes from um, information that has looked at the ability to reduce hospital stay, reduce kidney trauma, and reduce uh, ischemic and reperfusion injuries post-surgery. And that's actually using a modality that's called um, ischemic preconditioning and or we say remote ischemic conditioning. conditioning. And that's the application of a tourniquet onto a patient before they go into the OR room where they are taken into a, a no oxygen into the limb. So no arterial uh, flow in, no venous flow out. That's repeated through some bouts of uh, of time on and time off, and um, has really provided a a window into understanding how the body can prepare itself for stress. And um, so, if we automatically take a look at that, these are patients who are already going into surgery. Uh, they're already facing, you know, uh, the majority of the patients that have been looked at with this for surgery have been cardiac patients. So, you know, we have surgeons that are viewing the benefit of tourniquets in their capacity to artificially create a small uh, stress to the body to have a larger adaptation that's acute. Um, Then we can kind of now approach a patient being underneath less pressure for less amount of time in a even smaller amount of intensity. They're they're not having surgery done to them. so if we're thinking in the acute environment, um, applying some BFR through the use of, obviously, you know, we want to pick something that is at least a medical device. Uh, we want to have something that has, you know, specifically on the tourniquet, it's nice and wide. That allows us to use very low pressures. We obviously want to be using a Doppler so that we can individualize uh, that, that patient's um, uh, um, hypoxic-like environment in their limb. Um, so they have this person, you know, personalized or individualized, uh, limb occlusion pressure. I think if we hit those, it becomes much safer to approach, um, even somebody who's in the acute setting, uh, with greater benefit. And in fact, there actually has been uh, case studies that have been already performed in that semi-acute setting with inclusion body myositis. So this would be, I don't know if you've seen it kind of in your capacity. I saw probably... In my two years, I saw two cases of IBM, and this is a adult onset, almost muscular dystrophy, where there's an excessive waste of muscle that occurs. There appears to be no real stimulus or trigger for it, just happens. Okay. And in these cases, these individuals, like anybody with MS, or pardon me, with, uh, um, with muscular dystrophy, 
uh, would not be able to be exposed to exercise. You know, so even, you know, m mildly intense exercises that are needed to kind of progress that patient to discharge, it wouldn't help them. It, they've already been um, uh, applying rounds of BFR with them and notice great benefit in the ability for them to increase muscle protein synthesis, um, increase functional scores like uh, timed up and go, uh, sit to stand, and um, with no adverse effects. Uh, we can see the same thing occurring with the application of BFR to help and maintain or, you know, um, orthostatic um, uh, blood pressure. Uh, you know, so you're obviously you're changing from having a patient who's maybe in supine for a couple of days, they're recovering. We know we need to get them up. We need to get them moving. Orthostatic hypertension is a big risk with it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, placing tourniquets on somebody has the capacity to help and elevate their blood pressure just a small amount, but that may be enough to actually help them to um, maintain that. And obviously, we are also seeing some of their cardioprotective mechanisms occur in the limbs in terms of, like Nicholas has spoken about kind of before, improved mitochondrial function. Um, probably talk about that in just a sec. And I'm going to leave this all. I'm going to let him talk about that for, for just a moment. Last thing I would add with it is um, if we have um, the ability for um, thinking of another case study right now, uh, they, they've already looked at uh, MS. Um, Parkinson's disease. I see a lot of Parkinson's patients in my clinic and, um, as well, spinal cord injury patients and uh, chronic stroke. Uh, we've in each of these groups, there have been positive effects when approached in a very, um, kind of strategic manner, less is more, so to speak with BFR. And we'll talk about the pillars in a moment, kind of like how that works. Um, but there are already good outcomes that are happening with a lot of safety if we're approaching it through what I had just mentioned before in those studies. <laughs> so if you want to talk to me about mitochondrial function, just like quick, like how could that help somebody in the acute setting to have improved? Oxygen? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it, at the end of the day, it just comes down to how can you, how can you try to acclimate the body to upcoming bouts of stress really? Okay. Uh, and so what what ischemic preconditioning is in the most basic of senses is you're just stressing you're stressing the muscle cell you're stressing most importantly you're stressing the mitochondria and in doing so prepares it for upcoming strenuous bouts of activity um so there's localized effects and there's systemic effects um there's a lot of really 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 cool research that's out there showing that you can actually reduce an infarct size uh, with the uh, application of ischemic preconditioning prior to, you know, inducing a or suffering a stroke or, you know, in, in, in rats and rabbits, they induce a stroke and they see that the, when you are doing ischemic preconditioning, you are completely occluding arterial and venous flow for a short period of time creating that graded stimulus to the mitochondria and the muscle cell, which then helps pretty much sets off a signaling cascade inside intracellular, uh, intracellularly to then, you know, migrate some of those protective factors like heat shock proteins and uh, genetic transcription markers to help upregulate, you know, cellular defense. And so you get to do that under a controlled situation. So when you actually get to that strenuous bout of activity, you've already mobilized the forces, so to speak. So, um, so that's where the effect comes in, in the rehab setting. And it also transcends into to the performance setting as well, which is really the exciting uh, part of 
kind of why we're here at least together um, right now. But um, but yeah, tons tons of really 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 cool applications, and uh, it's just understanding the physiology and kind of what's going on because being able to communicate that to a provider in terms of like a surgeon uh, is really important uh, because I I can tell and I can attest that I've gotten grilled and. Uh, and if I didn't understand what was going on underneath the application of the tourniquet, it, it would have just not turned out as, as well as it did. Um, so. I'll add to that. Um, so tourniquet research has demonstrated that tourniquets in and of themselves pose no potential risk for increasing uh, the formation of a thrombus, so a clot. In fact, uh, upon deflation of a, of a tourniquet, you actually see an upregulation of TPA. So TPA is a clot-busting enzyme that is released from the arteries once they're stressed. This, we see the same thing happen with high-intensity training, which is why people aren't stroking out when they're doing that. But it also is the same mechanism that's used when a patient arrives at the hospital suffering from an ischemic face stroke. So that patient would be given endogenous injection of TPA. Yep. So, you know, when we're talking about exercise, having you know a, a cardiovascular and neurovascular protective um, uh, stimuli. Um, it's because of TPA and it's because of uh, what Nicholas spoke about just you know, momentarily about uh, mitochondria, the body's ability to mobilize and regulate um, uh, almost like these anti-stress um, uh, systems or pathways. So um, when a patient is you know, at risk of developing a clot, like what if they're immobilized, they're in bed for a while, you know, in, the, in that inpatient setting, I can count a couple times where I had a patient who had both limbs that were unable to be used and uh, we're really no chair and we're putting them on, you know, um, onto a mat doing some exercises or they're just post stroke and we're trying to get them up on a standing table. And we're really doing that to help and decrease the risk of a DVT. How cool can we, would it be if we start really addressing the benefits of tourniquets simply by inflation and deflation? in that same setting um, at decreasing the risk of DVTs due to right, the TPA uh, release that we know happens with tourniquets. So that's likely going to be something in the, in the future that we're, we're not only going to see BFR you know, rehab, and we're not only going to see BFR in the world that we are in in performance. You know, we're already seeing BFR in large medical institutions uh, that are beginning to uh, kind of uncover uh, those mechanisms. Um, yeah. So just to uh, make sure I got um, understood that everything you were saying there in kind of, I guess, a, a dumbed down way. Um, so for like all the protective responses and everything, like for that patient that you were just talking about where they're unable to use their limbs or anything for a long time, um, you can just put on the, the tourniquets and either just like inflate, deflate and have them do nothing or even if it's just quadricep contractions and you're still going to get a lot of those like TPA and mitochondrial reactions that are going to help protect against the DVT and thrombosis. Yeah, uh, when you talk about the pillars and kind of like how that how that would go with it, kind of from less stress, more stress. Yeah, so what we'll try to do is kind of break down the levels at which you could use BFR based on the person's tolerance uh, or based on the demand that it creates. Um, and then the first level of that will be ischemic preconditioning, just because you will, in fact, just lay there while the pressure is being applied and, and the pressure will be determined on an individual individualized basis. There are studies that look at standard pressures and then there are studies that look at 
the individual's personalized or individualized uh, level of occlusion uh, for arterial pressure. So with that one, there's not a lot of demand required from the patient at the time. They just lay okay. there, we put on the pressure. Now when they're ready, and, and that's why it's so easy to tap into that, right? Non-threatening, yeah, a lot going on. So once they're able to tolerate just a bit more, then we regulate that pressure and we start adding a contraction. Now it could be a low-level contraction like an, an asymmetric hold. Um, mm-hmm. It could also be Russian stem. You could introduce stem at the moment. And oh, by doing okay. that, what ends up happening is that you start increasing a lot of the metabolic byproducts that come with it, like lactate could be one of them. Yeah. So obviously, that's going to in, induce the cascade that's going to lead later on to growth hormone, the changes in collagen formation. So once you go through that cell swelling protocol, then you could actually start moving towards a low resistance exercise. Um, you could actually start doing a little bit of endurance. So it's very low level um, walking or biking. Again, not very threatening, but the, the amount of metabolic byproduct increases yet again. And then from there, you could actually go towards low resistance, actual loads. So for lifting purposes. And then once you're able to bridge out of that, then that you're looking more at that return to sport, return to play. So now I just took you through a chain in which you're just increasing the, the demand in a way, in a way that is not threatening by increasing the metabolic byproducts that are going to initiate all these reactions. Yeah, and, and taking that kind of stair-step approach is something that we've seen, you know, in our own clinical practice has the best outcomes simply because, you know, BFR um, is not easy to go right into even light intensity exercise, uh, not even getting close to lifting at, you know, the, the research rates of 20 to 30% of your 1RM. Like that is a big goal to get your patients. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, taking, jumping the gun on that, um, you know, we have evidence that shows us that your rate of perceived exertion is going to be pretty high with BFR compared to other types of training. So you do need to condition your patient basically through graded exposure with BFR. We feel it's a topic that's not spoken enough of. And most people just think, oh, I'm going to go right into exercise. I'm going to go right into endurance. And, um, you know, I think more importantly is that, you know, we're attempting to provide um, good medical alliance with our patients. And a lot of that is going to come through uh, the exposure uh, that they have or the experience that they have while they're there. And a stair-step process makes a lot of sense. and it allows us to then also start to approach this in an individual way, right? Uh, Certain patients will fall on certain parts of that stair, right? Or certain parts of those pillars. Some patients may fall on the first pillar, which is going to be maybe no exercise at all, really trying to not, you know, overly stress the body, but we're actually trying to condition the body to a little bit of stress. Um, And again, Wolf's Law, right? We got to feed it, but we don't need to overfeed it in the very beginning. And, you know, gradually taking... Uh, that patient through each pillar is what we've seen to make uh, to make most sense to us. But it's also why we've been so successful in applying BFR outcomes with our patients, either post-acute, um, you know, pre-op, post-op, uh, and then obviously in a performance capacity because uh, one size shoe does not fit all when it comes to BFR, and you can easily um, you know set somebody off on the wrong direction with BFR if you're just uh, not understanding, you know, the, uh, uh, maybe not the nitty gritty science, but you're just not understanding that there is a, um, there is a progression that can be done, you know? So 
Of course. So um, my next question, and it, and it kind of ties into the pillars that you have, um, how do you go about, um, and, and this goes for all three of you with your um, you know, individualized kind of practice, but how do you go about patient buy-in? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, how do you, how do you go about patient buy-in um, as far as, you know, because I can see, you know, most patients, you know, come to, to a clinic or to a PT, you know, and they have a generalized idea of, you know, kind of what they're going to receive um, or get out of the experience. But when you start talking about BFR, it's, it's something that's very new to a lot of people. So how do you, I guess, how do you go about, you know, explaining that process to the patients, um, you know, what to expect, um, you know, that kind of that, that process and getting them to buy into, you know, what you want to implement with them, you know, using BFR. I can, I can take this one. So obviously, and, and like we start a lot of our answers when it comes to uh, in, in our courses with BFR is it depends. Yeah. Yes. It'll depend on the physical therapy answer. We say that a lot. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Um, and it has to do with BFR is such an amazing tool that it actually spreads across um, a lot of different um, variables. That way, it, it, that's why it depends, because depending on how you use this tool, you're going to be able to tap into that one population. So the depends here is who is your population? So if you're dealing with somebody who is unfamiliar with exercise, right? This is not a sensation that they normally get. They don't regularly lift anything. Um, we, training age. Yeah, and, and or yeah, I would say advanced age, perhaps the other preconceived notions about what exercise is and how it's going to feel. We try to be um, more gradual in the introduction of BFR. We're not trying to have them come in and have this uh, very intense session in which they, they they're experiencing so many things that they can't really put it together and and then at that point bfr itself will become threatening to them so what we try to do is actually grade them over a period of one to two weeks on the difficulty of the exercises how much pressure they're using that way over that two-week period of time it actually starts becoming more familiar to them I, I, we also believe that there's an adaptation that happens during that period of time as far as the the subjective perception of, of work that they're doing. So we allow some of that adaptation to occur. So by the time that you were two weeks in, they're a lot more comfortable progressing into the pillars. Now, if you're dealing with an athlete that is very familiar with that sensation, um, I go all out, <laughs> honestly. So, yeah. um, which is also something that, that I try to clarify in the courses. So if I'm dealing with a bodybuilder and they're coming in and they're healthy, so we definitely are doing our, our medical screening to make sure that they're not at risk for any obvious negative reaction, uh, which is most of the cases, uh, then I tend to go onto the higher threshold as far as their tolerance goes, um, because I know that mechanically we are not inducing any uh, serious damage. So even if they have some micro changes from when it comes to mechanical damage, it's nothing significant compared to their regular lifting session. So I know that, and they're familiar with his sensation too. So I know we could push him a lot more. And even psychologically, that feels good to them to know, hey, we just did this. I felt it. Um, I feel the difference when I took off the cough. So there's an, an automatic psychological awareness that they, they're on the right path. And that is going to wrap up part one of Take 15 with the BFR Pros, hitting you with the old cliffhanger. If you like what you heard, if you want to know more about this BFR stuff, if you think you got a patient in the clinic that might be able to benefit from it, 
come on back next week. We're going to be getting into it again. We'll see you then.